Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Diodora, the brand made legendary by Bjorn Borg, currently worn by world number 26, Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, world number 25, Jan Leonard Struff, world number 42, Martina Trevisan. See them at Diodora.com. Use my code APPROVED in all caps at HollywoodSports.com for 15% off of all Diodora performance tennis shoes. Today's episode is also sponsored by Baja Mar Resorts, the home of the Baja Mar Cup, which I participated in just a couple weeks ago. Got to play with Vika Azarenka, Jess Pagula, Taylor Townsend, James Blake, and today's guest. It is an awesome event at the nicest resort in the Caribbean. Follow at Baja Mar Resorts on Instagram and keep an eye out for next year's Cannot Miss event. He was born in Podgorica, Montenegro in 1990 and emigrated with his family to Canada in 1994. Armed with one of the best serves in the history of the game, he has posted wins over Fed, Rafa, and Murray, to name a few. In 2016, he got to three in the world. Milos Raonic is today's guest. Now, hang on a second. Are you in the Bahamas? Are you in Nassau? Nassau, that's where I am. I'm in the Bahamas, spending the off-season here, doing my training block here as I get ready for the start of the year. And we met a couple weeks ago at at Baja Mar, during the Baja Mar Cup. But you live close by there. I heard you live at Albany. Is that a different spot? Yeah, just very close by, 10, 15 minutes away. And I've been here for a couple years now. This is where I train out of. This is uh, where I spent most of uh, the COVID time. And this is where I've been uh, the last few years since uh, I haven't been on the road playing much due to injury. And hang on a second. And Leighton Hewitt... Curios, uh, Knowles, are they? Is are you guys all there? Is that the spot where you guys all live? Is that or do I have that wrong? No, close. Uh, Mark and Layton are here. Uh, Nick okay. is close by, and he comes by often. Really? Yeah. For our listeners, gentlemen, you hear former world number three, Canada's finest. You're, you're Montenegrin. Montenegrin. Yeah, I was born there, um, and we left in ninety. When the war broke out, moved to just that metropolitan of Toronto, and then grew up in Toronto, pretty much. And that's Milos Raonic. Uh, Milos Raonic is is uh, on the show, alive and amplified. Man, it's good to see you. It's good to be here. Good to see you again. Listen, we're gonna chop it up nice today. Uh, as you know, we do the five set format. The first set is the off the court report. So we met a couple of the sparring partners you have. These college kids. Who else is down there? So those, you met uh, Jacoby Bain and uh, Michael Major at the Bahamar Cup. They were two fortunate recipients of the Mark Knowles Foundation that really helped them get their junior careers off and both now have uh, incredible scholarship opportunities and uh, academic opportunities in the U.S. And then now I'm actually down here training with uh, a junior came down from Florida, Roy Horowitz, I believe a top 30 junior in the world so he's been down here training with me and uh we've been able to put in some good work we got a couple more sessions to go before you know you start to pack the bags and head over to australia when are you flying Ooh, the day after new year's i decided not to play the first week of the year um i was hoping to play in hong kong but uh, now with how protected rankings work and i wasn't able to get a wild card i decided i don't want to use a protected on a 250 so i'll go straight down to melbourne 
And, and what's your protected ranking when you enter the draw? Somewhere around the 30s, I believe. I just know that most events, well, my, pretty much all the events I want to, I could get in. So I'm high enough that I would make the cut there. I believe I have eight more events going into next year. No, so so Christmas, New Year's in the Bahamas. No Connecticut, no New York City, no Canada. No, I'm just actually going to go up north, see my family for my birthday. My birthday is two days after Christmas. So go there for three days and then just kind of break up the trip because um, that'll be in Connecticut and then uh, break up the trip and be able to fly from New York, you know, with just one stopover. You know, it's a long trip to Australia. You just try to make it as easy as possible. What's your what's your secret to uh, cross world travel? What, how do you, when you come off the plane? Do you just go straight to the courts or do you uh, ease in? Yeah, you stay awake. No naps because those naps you never end up waking up on time. And the number one rule that's helped me the most, it's not fun getting up a lot of times on a 14 hour flight to go to a bathroom, but I think I drink about a liter of water for every hour of flying. So you're just guzzling water. A liter goes pretty quick. Like you see how players go through a liter of water on court when you're playing, like a liter goes pretty quick. That goes down. It just, I try to keep that kind of track. Um, Cause then I know like, Hey, It'll go from like three, four rough days of jet lag uh, instead of like seven or eight. And now tell the truth. Do you take any kind of special powders that you're not going to tell us about? Do you have any special? For, for uh, flying? Yeah. No, no. No, no, no. So for me, the only thing is like fly overnight so I can kill a bunch of that time with sleep, especially that long flight, that flight from L.A., across to melbourne you want to kill and luckily i land something like 10 in the morning so uh so if i can fly on the back end of that flight it will be helpful because then it'll feel like i'm just kind of waking up slowly getting there the first day and there's nothing like being in australia that's that's as good as it gets nothing like being in australia beginning of the year everybody's fresh everybody's happy everybody's ready to go everybody wants to see where they're at everybody's in a good mindset it's just like a total reset you're not thinking about like defending and stuff you're like hey we all start with zero points this year let's see where we're at let's move into the second set this is the on the court report listen i know that you have um, a sophisticated palette for the politics and the politics of the day i have just learned that in three weeks time and i don't know how they're going to do this but in three weeks time the Grand Slams, the majors are having a meeting in London about this big, you know, takeover situation, <clears throat> taking control of the 1000 tournaments, taking control of a lot of the tennis. Uh, what can you tell me about that? Um, it's a lot more complicated. It's not like I know the thing I've read about is like, hey, people are thinking like, does this start next year? Does it start the year after? Like if this all was, it's not that way. Don't forget, you need super majority in ATP. You need two out of three votes on the player side. You need two out of three votes on the tournament side. Don't forget, two of those three votes are 500s and 250s. Are they going to be happy about feeling accepted as a lower tier event? Let me stop you for a second. Do I have it right that it's essentially an effort to stave off a live golf situation? To me, it seems like a, an effort to appease. Everybody thought the drama with live golf and the PGA was kind of going to come to a much uh, more simmering heat 
um, through the summer after that potential merger was announced. Now you see the whole thing with John Rahm getting picked up, which other players might go. I think the way it works is the PGA is much stronger than the ATP. I think they've had uh, much more monetary success. I think they probably have a much stronger treasury balance sheet and so forth. And you saw even with all that strength that it couldn't compete, right? All those legal fees were eating up all through their treasury. So I think the ATP is aware of that in many ways. And I think the ATP and also probably the PIF, the, the, the fund from the, uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, for our listeners, the public investment fund, which is essentially the Saudi royal family's cash, cashola, which is talked about being $900 billion. Yeah, I don't. I, I just don't see how you want to fight that. It seems that the PGA hasn't been that successful in it, and I think they are trying to make things work. And I think also, if it were that the PIF is really interested in participating in tennis, I think they would want to do it internally rather than having another one of these public fights going all over the place and eating up and uh, a lot of monetary resources but also a lot of uh, let's say public credibility in the sense of are they just going to come through and try to steamroll a few uh, all these sports we're hearing that craig tiley of the of tennis australia he's the tenor director of tennis australia is extremely forward pushing on this and i've heard from some very inside sources that they think that this is very real you seem much more skeptical I just think people overestimate how much can happen in a short period of time and underestimate how much can happen over a longer period of time. This is one of those things that if it were to happen, if, if it was to be any truth or any further reason to explore, it would have to happen over a very long period of time. There are many owners you have to look in respect to ATP events. There's going to be many 250 owners that are going to be pissed saying, hey, what happens to us? Are we what ATP tour are we a part of? Then you're going to have the 500s, which are also equally as upset because they're going to be the first tier that kind of gets bumped out of the cut. But don't forget, also the players are going to be upset. The players own half of the ATP tour. What, what do they are they left with owning? Half of 500s and half of 250s? We don't own anything of the Grand Slams. We have no say uh, with them. We tr uh, I think we've been represented and people try to speak our voice to them. But there's no ownership there. So what happens? Do the players just get stuck holding on to a piece of half a tour that they thought they owned that doesn't have much value all of a sudden? So there's going to be a lot of parties that need to be appeased. Could it all happen? It could, but it just it will take a lot of time. So this whole thing, they're meeting in three weeks. Yeah, it's they meet in three weeks, but they're not getting anything done in three weeks. They're just trying to see where it goes. Do you ever talk to Novak about PTPA stuff? Do you have any, or, or Pospisil? No, I, have, I haven't been on tour the last few years, right? Since uh, this whole thing has taken off. And I understand, I guess, the purpose. I was there when it was starting uh, in 2020. But I think it looks like a very different thing than what was discussed back then. Are, are they really the ones that are trying to get that, get that Middle Eastern money, get that get that big money coming i think everybody's look everybody's looking for some muscle right now and i think that's the question is like how do we fortify our positions how does do the grand slams secure themselves 
there are the biggest, what, I think Grand Slams are 80% of tennis revenue. It's very different from the golf situation. A lot of those PGA events in golf that were outside of their four majors or masters, whatever you want to call them, were a lot bigger piece of the pie. The ATP and the WTA are one quarter of what the four Grand Slams are. So you're talking about most of the tennis calendar being equivalent to one Grand Slam pretty much in the revenue they can bring in. So how does this look to me, who has no any further knowledge than anybody else, is the Grand Slams want to be protected. The Grand Slams know they have this incredible IP. They know they have this incredible value uh, that they just want to insulate themselves. Don't forget, the four Grand Slams have nothing to do with each other. They have just always understood if the four of us stay together, nothing can upset us. And that's why they've done extremely well. But one thing that's very interesting in this whole thing, if you go one step beyond Novak, who's 36, 37 years old at this point, how do you have two guys playing each other? You cannot have a discussion about Grand Slams for about a decade and a half because nobody's even close to 24, right? So all of a sudden, the narrative by commentators won't always be like, hey, is this guy close uh, to breaking Grand Slam records? That can't be the narrative. And I thought that would be a great opportunity if the ATP could improve its product because the amount of Masters one will matter, right? Because that's how players will also be measured. I thought the next year is an incredible thing for the ATP to have this strong reset and to rebuild its brand and maybe eat into that 80% of revenue share that the Grand Slams have. But if the Grand Slams encompass everything, I think that it kind of weakens the strength of the ATP Tour. Now, I don't think these two-week events are great for tennis. Uh, myself, personally, I, I was on sitting on the sideline watching Rome in Madrid. And there was a lot of days where there just wasn't much matches to watch when you got close to the final ending. So I don't know which way it's going. I, I think everybody's kind of really obsessed with this. Hey, Formula One got it right. And all these kind of thing. Everybody tried to do a Netflix show after. Formula One got it right because there was nothing on TV. Tiger King got it right, too, during COVID. Like, a lot of people want to forget that, uh, that too. So there's a lot of things like where maybe the quality quite wasn't there. I'd really love to see how well Drive to Survive is doing nowadays. I just don't think it is. But I think these shows, the tennis show, the golf show, they all will continue because they're just cheap to make. What does it cost? You know, to put on, to make a scripted TV show is going to cost Netflix millions of dollars. All these content providers need hours and hours to keep people around. What does it cost to follow a few tennis players, go to a few uh, Grand Slams and a few Masters, maybe a crew of six? I just don't think that just because it's worked for one sport, that, that is going to be the answer and the cure to all other sports where tennis seems like it's trying to be a Formula One, have a few big weeks, and that's it. I agree. There are too many weeks in tennis. I think there's too many, too many people, I think, think that tennis finishes after the U.S. Open. So. I think there's a lot of things that could be done better, but that's just my experience and my opinion and not one that's ever been very involved in the tennis world. Do you have a formulated opinion about how Gaudenzi has done? Um, I've, I've been disappointed at moments. Personally, I voiced that opinion at the beginning. Disappointed why? Well, just uh, there was first things during COVID. I think I was actually one when we had all our phone calls that called for, I think there was like the 
director of the PGA of all these other sports, they uh, effectively nullified their compensation for, for that year so that players that were struggling, athletes that were struggling could get by. I called for that. There was no interest in that, in a reaction to that. And it got ignored after certain amounts. But, and then there's, for me, I think there's kind of always been maybe some kind of conflict of interest. He did work for ATP Media before, which is the monetary arm, right? The ATP tour is a non-for-profit. ATP Media is to make money. Um, and ATP Media, don't forget, was having all these meetings with the, the tournaments, the Master Series that own big chunks of it, right? Those are the rights holders. So there was, as much as he was a former player, there was a lot more alignment within recent years with the tournaments. And then I guess I was just two Master Series being sold for incredible sums of money uh, between Madrid and uh, Cincinnati. I have yet to see that the players have benefited from those two sales. Those two sales are incredibly valued due to the fact that everybody knew tournaments were going to two weeks, that they can make money across a two-week event rather than just across a nine-day event like it was before. So which way has most of the benefits gone so far? I feel like it's been towards the tournaments. Heavy politics. Milos Rionis seems to have a pretty decent pulse for somebody not involved. Uh, on it all. Let's move into the third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. Now, first and foremost, you you left war. Is that why you ended up in Canada? Well, we, yeah, there was turmoil. It never got really terrible um, in Montenegro like it did in certain other parts of former Yugoslavia. But it was a motivating factor why we left and why we emigrated to Canada. And your tennis begins right there in Canada. In Canada, but much later. We moved in 94. I didn't start playing tennis till I was like almost nine years old in 99. Both parents were engineers and... Um, just there was tennis courts close by. They needed to keep uh, a very over-energized kid busy and sign me up for, we call it up in Canada, March break, but most people know it as a spring break camp. So when you're bouncing around at all these tournaments and all these Serbs and Croatians are are there, do you, did you eavesdrop on them? Do they forget that you speak uh Serbian? No, no, I, I, I speak, I speak uh, Montenegrin fluently. And actually... My parents, even to this day, will never speak to me in English. They didn't want me to be, because I was the three-year-old when we were moving, they didn't want me to not know the language. So they, they to this day, will never speak to me in English. Um, and then it actually got better the last years on tour, uh, just because you speak it with many different people, and you speak it all the time. So I, people are well aware that I can eavesdrop or whatever you want to call it. Now, do you now do you eat, do you eat the chavapi and the burek and drink the rakia and all that? I don't drink the rakia, but I I will definitely indulge in all the other foods. Yes, for sure. I'm a big chavapi fan. Don't drink the rakia. No, I don't drink. I don't drink. Period. Not a sip. No, I might have two, three glasses a year of wine. Has it always been the case? Not a drinker. Not a drink. Just never enjoyed it. Never found the the joy or the pleasure uh, from it. I guess when you're a pro athlete, that's probably useful. Now, when did you start getting good? When was I good on the Canadian stage? Uh, probably by the age of 12 or 13. I was always amongst one of the top juniors in Canada. What was the quality of Canadian tennis back then? Um, it's kind of easy to forget with this incredible success we've had. It wasn't that high. You know, me and uh, Vashik, 
both being the same age. There was another kid, Nathaniel Gary. It was kind of the three of us that were kind of rotating depending on who was kind of playing the best at that moment. But um, Were you going to Florida all the time? I only went to Florida to play Eddie Hur in Orange Bowl. That was the only travel I did till I was about 16. Really? Yeah, I didn't go outside tournaments much. I was based with a coach privately uh, just uh, in the suburbs of uh, Toronto. And I stayed there till I was about 16. At 16, I went, I joined the first rendition, the first uh, annual year of the National Tennis Center, which has turned out to be an incredible success. I stayed in Montreal about two or three years. I was playing most more tournaments I would travel to from international ITF tournaments. I played, I think I only won one match as a junior in Grand Slams. I was reading that that your 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 junior record in the majors was not good. No, it wasn't good. Were you banging that serve down everybody's throat? Could you not hit a backhand? Like what kind of kid were you? I always served well. I was quite inconsistent um, at that age, and then I struggled uh, with players that could get serves back more consistently. And you said you always serve well. Like, where did that motion come from? Where did that ability just to absolutely bang the the hell out of that ball? Where where did that come from? So my first coach spent a lot of time with me. He was with me, uh, and we worked together for about seven, eight years, from first starting tennis till till I left for Montreal at sixteen. What was his name? Casey Curtis. Casey Curtis. There just wasn't players to play with all the time. So you grab a basketballs and you go out and you serve. Uh, obviously being very motivated by my favorite player being Pete Sampras made me well aware of the benefits of having a very good serve. I just ended up working on that a lot. He, he will tell you that, uh, he was, uh, you know, my father was quite tall. My father's six, one, six, two, my brother's six, four. I wasn't the tallest kid when I was junior, but it was going to come. What are you now? I'm six, five. You are. Yeah. So it was bound to come. So he could see that. Yeah, the one thing I do see a lot of people when it comes to serving, they they think like, hey, I grab basketballs, I go out there, I serve 100%. But you serve 100% one after the other, it's hard to hit more than 60 serves and you're calling it a day. I could go out there, I could hit two, 300 serves in a day easy. But, you know, you're serving at 60, 70%. And then eventually you learn from that, uh, the strength comes because you're just biomechanically more efficient from doing it a lot you just get better at through repetition i think all those things kind of helped me and i think back then i dedicated more time to serving uh, than most and i still think i do nowadays you know i read that you and uh sam query are the the only two players that turned down a scholarship to virginia that cracked the top hundred yeah what was the impetus for turning pro as opposed to going the college route? Where, where were you at that moment in time? For me, it was actually a rational thing, which most of my life, I don't make many emotional decisions. Everything's pretty, you know, I try to be pretty calculated and rational about things. Um, always was looking at universities and I, let, I, w- I made them fully aware, like, hey, I would like to have the option to go to school, but until the time comes, I'm 50-50 on the fence. Will I be going to school or not? One thing that I'm very fortunate with is uh, because of the heavy education in my house with my parents and then what they uh, really encouraged with my brother and sister and then later with me, 
I knew the academics would always be there. I, I went to school regularly. I actually, I attended school. I didn't do much online schooling like uh, most do when you really start focusing on tennis. I was very confident uh, in my academic abilities. So when you say support, travel, coach, and stipend, they, they laced you up. Well, I believe at that point when I went pro, they did my coaching and the coach's expenses. I was responsible for my own expenses when I made that transition from juniors to professional tennis. And did you sign a deal with IMG and like get big money? No, no, no I didn't no. get anything. I, I, I remember the first. Oh, he's looking at me like I'm crazy. Yeah, no, no, no. There wasn't any of that. None of that. I believe if you look closely, the first time I made kind of a breakthrough when I qualified for the Masters in Montreal, I think I was like the first Canadian in many years that had done it. Um, you see me wearing Under Armour clothes, which was just something my agent was able to get them to give to me. And like Nike tennis shoes. I had no sponsors. Uh, Wilson, you know, was nice enough since it's the only racket I've played with since I was like, I believe, nine or 10 years old when I started. They always were kind enough for me, but um, didn't even have a clothing sponsor, all that kind of stuff when uh, I think I was maybe around 250 in the world. Then I never had that kind of support before. So uh, um, I just don't think that tennis, Canadian tennis drew that kind of attention uh, before. Whereas now with the young guys coming out, of, you know, Felix always had it and he deserved it. Right. I believe he picked up his first ATP point at 14 or 15 years old. Dennis always had it. I think people look at it in a very different light nowadays than it was looked at back then. Did you like being a pro player when you were 250? Your life must get much better when you crack the top hundreds is what I'm guessing. Or did you, did you like the grind? It's hard to remember. I think you just are so obsessed with breaking through. Nothing else mattered. You could put me in whichever situation. I think even if you look at my challenger record, I think I lost like I got a bunch of wild cards from like Canadian challengers. I think I lost my first like nine in a row or something. And then I made one final uh, in Granby. The one thing I always advise players is like, don't get comfortable with that futures and challengers because once you have like kind of too many friends and uh, there and you kind of enjoy it too easy to get stuck there. You just, you want to move on and, uh, there's 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 so many good players in the tennis world 300s 400s 500s couple ATP points here and there but some that I've seen just kind of get a little too complacent and that life's a little too good and yeah it's not fun from the monetary aspect of it but you know you go on the road you're with friends you go out you have dinner with friends there might be just a little bit of hunger that's lost along that um, for me I always had this idea because I knew education matter that if I don't make it in a certain amount of time, I wasn't going to, you know, keep trying till I was like 25, 26. I had a few years that I had to, in my own mind, that I had to make it a uh, agreement I w made with my parents. If I don't make it in that time, I'm going back to school. Really? Yeah. So there was that sense of urgency. That's for sure. Was there ever a day, was there ever a week that you were, you said, oh, you know what? I could be really good. I could do something special. Was there a win? I think for me, it just, the way I broke through in 2011, one thing right after the next that happened so quickly that I really didn't get a chance to absorb any of it till, you know, I went from 150 something, I believe, to start the year um, by Indian Wells. I was already in the top 30. So what is that? Like eight, 10 weeks. Then you went to clay for the first time at ATP events. Like you just get caught up in this whirlwind really fast. The only time I ever really had to, a chance to sit down and 
embrace it was when I had hip surgery that year. Um, I had an unfortunate slip at Wimbledon, had to have hip surgery right after. And that was like the only real moment. Like, wow, the world around me has changed a lot. My world has changed. But then it's like, okay, I'm told this recovery is going to take 10 to 12 weeks. How do we make it six? And you just get caught up with that. And you just, you know, tennis is, tennis is unforgiving in that way. You go from one thing to the next very quickly. And it's very hard to ever sit down and really enjoy something. Or maybe it could be just my personality, but there hasn't been much that I've been able to really embrace and enjoy. I, I feel like when your name, your, your name in, on some level is, is, is synonymous with a guy that has gotten hurt a lot. Yeah. Um, do I wish that wasn't this, the case? Definitely. Am I regretful, upset, or burnt out by it by, in those terms? No. The one thing I'm very lucky with is I believe there's two type of players. Like some players that just need to be able to go home, work hard, and can find their tennis pretty quickly once they come on the road. And there's some that, you know, it really takes them a lot of matches, time to get into things. Luckily, I've been kind of the form of the two, where even after two years going this year into Stuttgart, I was able to find my tennis right away. Can you name your injuries, name your surgeries? Can you go through it? Hip surgery in 2011, both feet surgery in 2015, 2017, wrist surgery. I'm trying to think, have there been any? Everything else has been kind of longer injuries torn Achilles, which has kept me out for like, that was my thing that took about two years. And then there's a lot of those injuries that happen where it's like, Hey, you're not doing anything for the next three weeks. But in tennis, it's not three weeks. Like many times I've either torn an adductor or quad muscle. People think like, Oh, you're recovered in two, three weeks. I'll see you at a tournament through three weeks. No, you're not doing anything for two weeks. And it probably takes you about another four weeks to get ready to be able to play at a high level. So that's like six weeks you're out. So there's a whole other math to it than, you know, than the obvious calculation. Is there any explanation for for your proneness or is it just the way it is? Like the biggest fight I've always had with people is like, hey, you need to do a little bit less in terms of either whether that be the intensity of training, the volume of training and stuff. And my argument has been I get my confidence. I play well because I work hard. I trust that it's hard for me to operate doing less. Um, so maybe I've been stubborn on that thing and I have this extremely obsessive personality. I can do things numerous times over and over again until I get them right. Is that the healthiest thing in the world or maybe for my tennis career? It hasn't been, but also at the same time, nobody's guaranteeing me if I did less things that I'd be as good of a tennis player. So it's really hard to find that balance, but, uh, yeah, it's been what's worked for me. I'm very proud of it and I just try to get better with it. Who were you in 2016? Uh, by far your best, your best year. Was that your best tennis? Yeah. And most people will actually refer to my best tennis being at Wimbledon, playing that final that year. But I actually thought my best tennis was in Australia that year. Um, I lost the semis to Andy. Um, yeah, I felt I had a better chance then than I did in Australia just because uh, than I did at Wimbledon just because I was playing much better but just got hurt in that semifinal and um had to stop for a little bit after that, but I thought that was my best tennis. Uh January, I think I won Brisbane that year. I was just playing really well. Um January of 2016. 
what was different about 2016? If you look back now, I mean, it's, you know, it's almost eight years ago. Um, yeah. What, what, who were you that year that you were just so, so, so tough? I wasn't doing any one thing incredibly better, but I was doing everything marginally better. Two, 3% here and there all throughout my game, returning much more consistently, not necessarily, you know, I wasn't hitting winners on returns, but just putting a higher percentage of returns deep down the middle of the court, starting the points, serving well, which I've always done, but just creating situations that put more and more pressure on my opponents. Uh, Moya was helping me that year and was uh, making a great impact on my tennis with uh, um, alongside uh, Ricardo as well, Piatti, uh, which who Ricardo uh, had already been with me, I believe two years up to that point. Um, John McEnroe came that summer, helped me out on grass a lot, helped me out through the summer before we unfortunately had to stop, even though it was something neither of us really wanted at that moment. And then, uh, and then, yeah, um, played well and through the fall, struggled a little bit mentally. And then it came down to crunch time. I had a chance to finish the year number three, came down to a few matches at the World Tour Finals. I got my act together, played a good World Tour Finals. And then, yeah, I was able to finish number three that year. Have you enjoyed being a pro player? Have you enjoyed being a pro tennis player? Do you love following the sun? Or do you have any friends on tour? Do you enjoy it? Yeah, I think it's one of the most beautiful and incredible things. And I've enjoyed everything I've gotten to do in tennis. Um, There's no way you can measure or quantify that pure joy of getting to live out your childhood dream. And on an extreme case, this is not like one day going to Disneyland. This is day in and day out. I love competing. I probably will never be able to step on a court without the idea or the comparison of like, how good is my forehand compared to how it used to be? Like for me to enjoy it, I have to get rid of those things. I will always (laughs) wonder like, okay, what do I need to do to serve better still? What do I need to like, I don't know if that will be fun being that person with my tennis. So I think it will be better for me to start another sport uh, more casually where I get to start from kind of, level zero after tennis what do you say to people that say well man this guy came out came up at the wrong time every the the tennis is slow uh the the player he came up with you know andy and rafa and uh and and novak and, and and roger and he he wasn't able to really beat those guys and he got stopped dead in his tracks over and over and if he was if he was in 1993 he would have been you know a multi you know a multi-major champion kind of thing ah what do i say i think it's kind of the most ridiculous comparison honestly ridiculous why because of the other guys around these guys push you right they have changed our tennis they have changed how a player prepares they have changed how professional players how how a player looks at the calendar year how the player manages things Players have set new standards, right? Yvonne Lendl was the first player that went into a gym that worked out. Uh, now we'll see a tennis player at a Grand Slam practice for two hours, but and they think that's it. That player is probably spending twice as much time in the gym or on a physio table. That wasn't done that way before. Players have evolved. Players, athletes have evolved. You see it in every sport. Uh, LeBron James is playing much longer than uh, MJ did. Tom Brady is setting a new standard. Roger Federer set a new standard. New standards have been set. I'm glad with the time I played. Could things have been different? 
who knows? Maybe there wouldn't be a player to push me. And then all of a sudden Milos is a player that can only hit a serve and can't hit a forehand. Who knows what, (laughs) what my tennis looks like, but. um, So that would be fair to say that competing in this time with Rafa, Fed, Novak, and Andy has been a pleasure, has made you better. Yeah, it's definitely made me better. It's definitely made every player on tour better. It's definitely made um, the players, like, I think the top guys through every generation were always great. Um, McEnroe, great, whichever generation you put him in. Is he playing with a continental forehand? No, but you're going to tell me that somebody as athletic as John wouldn't know how to hit a forehand with a semi-Western grip? I think that's a little naive. You don't think he would adjust. Um, you think he would still play with a leather grip with no overgrip? Uh, you still think he would play with a full racket of gut in today's? That's a little naive to me. I think where tennis changed, it all became democratized, right? I think uh, be- you look at the 90s. Most players came out of Voluntary's Academy, right? Uh, because that's a, the only location in the world where there was a group of players all together. Career, Agassi, Sampras was there for a bit. Um, then you had, uh, I believe Maria out of there. You had Tommy Haas, Mirren, like you had a bunch of players that con- now players get together all over the world. If you look at the top 10 right now, and we always, I always talk about it is like many players are Academy kids, right? You just don't get that many Academy kids because everybody nowadays knows how to train. So you get a, a lot of the time, which is a great thing to see a parent that's incredibly committed and is thinking about that kid's tennis as much as that kid's thinking about their own tennis, or you get a coach uh, or some kind of family member or somebody very close. I think that one-on-one commitment is incredibly important, but academies aren't what they used to be. Players like Rafa is not an academy kid. Novak was not really an academy kid. He was for a couple of years at the Pillage Academy, I believe in Germany, but Andy obviously went to an academy in Spain, but that was only at the age of 15. Roger was not an academy kid. Um, like, tennis has changed uh, from what it was, and I, it's naive to think that players wouldn't change. The thing that you see much better today is, I think, a player that's ranked 60 in the world in 2023 relative to the number one player in the world is a much smaller gap than a player that was ranked 60 in the world in 1993. I think those margins are much smaller, but that's because everybody has access to much better training, much better facilities, and much better knowledge on how to be a top professional player and how professional players should behave and what routines are. Can you play top 20 tennis in 2024? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, definitely. Um, The tennis fortunate thing for me is it's kind of weird to say, but the tennis has always come easy. Like I can come it back after not playing for a long time, I can serve well enough. I can get, you know, to a tiebreaker and then, you know, how the cards play out at that moment. And I can work my way into tournaments. Um, but my desire isn't to play a top level 20 level tennis. Um, I'm still playing tennis to this day because I think I can achieve something I haven't done yet. Um, I think if somebody told me like, Hey, somebody can, guarantee you your top 20 tomorrow but you will never be in the top 10 again i don't know how much longer i would play tennis that's not my goal by any means let's move into the fourth set this is the 10 ball scramble i say it you 
you say what comes in your mind, and we go fast. You ready? Here we go. Favorite tournament? Wimbledon. Favorite city? Tokyo. Why? The culture, the people, just every aspect. The tournament's pretty good. I'd say I, I wouldn't say it's the best of tournaments, but I I've gone to that tournament a few times just to have a reason to go back to Tokyo. Tokyo is so great, so great. And apparently, the rest of Japan is supposed to be much better. So I still haven't had the fortune of doing that. You said it before. Your favorite player growing up, Pete Sampras. What was it about him that made you love him? It was only about the tennis. He just set a whole nother standard of greatness, and that's all he cared about. And he was so bad to the bone, right? He was such an a- so athletic, so explosive. People forget how quick he was. Like he moved just as well as these other guys. Uh, do nowadays right you know people want to categorize him it's easy to categorize him as a certain volleyer and most people assume if you're a certain volleyer certain volleying because you don't move well on the baseline that's not the case this guy and the greatest running forehand of all time and you knew where it was going every time cross court and you still weren't getting it back any women any women that you uh enjoyed yeah i grew up watching everything especially the you know belgian players when i was younger growing up like that was the time of Kleisters, Hennen. What's your racket and how do you set it up? The Wilson Blade. I believe it's, I've used the same racket probably since I was like 16, 17. So would I know what my, I had, I work with uh, Nate uh, from Priority yep. One uh, and Ron, both incredible guys. For our listeners, P1, Priority One, amongst the original racket technicians, uh, Nate and Ron. Great guys. Great guys. Nate was the longtime Sampras man. So a lot of these young guys, they they copied Sampras. Him, and then I think Ron was with Andre, right? As well. Absolutely. So incredible. Absolutely. There's a whole line of history there. But how do you do your racket? Great story, but I'll make it quick. First year on tour, had three rackets I really enjoyed when I broke through in 2011. I was changing every seven, nine games, like most players do nowadays. So there'd be times when I was on the court where there was two rackets back in the stringy room getting struck. If things went wrong, I didn't have a racket. You would change your racket on the ball change. So after seven and then after every nine games. And trying to get into these new rackets just was not feeling right. Racket that felt incredible. I think because of how long I'd used it and the wood on the handle, it started to change shape as well and all that kind of stuff, gave that racket to Nate, said, hey, this is the golden ball. Everything needs to feel like this guy. And he's, I believe he still has that racket, and that's kind of been my, my standard. What that standard is, I don't know. I don't want to know. I just know what it should feel like, and I hope it feels like that every time I get a racket in my hand. For our listeners, that's how it works. The player gives the technician their favorite racket, and that racket gets copied. Well, how do you string your racket? What, what, what's the tension? What's the string? Luxwan M2. I believe it's a discontinued string. You, um, I just love the feeling. It's been, again, 13. I haven't changed anything in a setup since my first year on tour and even before that. What tension? Between 22 to 25 kilos, depending on condition. So what is that? 20, uh, 48 to 55 pounds range, somewhere there. And what about the grip? What size is the grip? How is it a cushion grip or a leather grip with an overwrap? Ooh. Golden Boy racket wouldn't. I think it's a leather grip underneath with a with a pro overgrip Wilson grip on top. Sizing and stuff have no clue. There's I just know what feels right. The best endorsement deal you ever had. 
Wilson's been with me since day nine years old. Haven't used another racket. The most cavalier thing you ever did with prize money right out of the office. Did you ever just like go buy a boat or buy a plane or anything like that? No, I don't No, I, again, no emotional purchases. Everything's rational. Everything's got to make sense. So very boring. Uh, saved most of my money. Um, yeah. I, you know, have not, not have never been into really extravagant, uh, showy things. I heard that when you've been, when you were injured, you moved to the Bahamas, you made a lot of like financial friends and that you've done that you've made some big, you've become like an investment guy. Is that true? That you're like an investment guy? I do quite a bit of that. I do quite a bit of business, business education, studying and investments. And yeah, it's been even before that. I was always quite aware. I've been advised and helped by some incredible people that have you know, gotten on with a, in an incredibly personal way as well. And that have been able to teach me as much as tennis coaches have taught me throughout my life. Do you have any advice for uh, the masses uh, about how to manage their money? Spend less than you make. Let's move into the fifth and final set. This is the king of the court. If you could be the king of tennis, make a change in the sport with just a swing of the racket, no aggravation, what would it be? Matches start at a fixed time. Matches last within a certain scope of time. And combined events are great, but I think either the size of events that they're happening at right now has to change, or you do combined events like the way, the way, and this is a personal one for me, the way the Canadian Open does it, right? They have the event at the same time, but they're able to have one in Toronto, one in Montreal alternating. What this does, it allows ten, like tennis venues to hold 128 draws, men's and women's. You cannot be in the middle of a big town, of a big center. You can't be the main attraction of that city. You got to be somewhere new, somewhere. To, look at Shanghai. Shanghai, the event is 45 minutes from the city. If we want to, if tennis wants to be the most important thing when it comes to the cities, it has to be in those cities. Make tennis a bit more concise, make it fit there, grow the game, make sure the game grows for the next generation, make sure it's in the right places, make sure the locations are great. And I think that will take care of a lot more players rather than just having big draws in some very obscure kind of irrelevant locations. Hey, man, uh, I guess we'll see each other in a few weeks. Um, are you healthy? Healthy, feeling good, ready to go down to Australia. Are you fit? You're ready to go. You're ready to go. I'm, I'm, I'm in great shape right now. So, you know, uh, Australia could start a little early. I'd be, I'd be probably be happier. Would have to probably train a little less, so it'd be a little less tired. But um, I'm ready. I've had plenty of time to get ready, so it's been good for me. Listen, uh, this has been a pleasure. Uh, I wish you all the best. It's been a while since I've been trying to lock this interview down. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And maybe I'll see you uh, off of Lafayette and Houston another time again. Milos Rionic, you are released. Huge thank you to Milos Rionic. And thank you to Diodora. Use my code APPROVED in all caps at hollabirdsports.com for 15% off of all Diodora performance tennis shoes. Thanks again to our sponsor, Baja Mar, for today's episode. Catch a recap of this fantastic event from Baja Mar. 
by following them on Instagram at Bahamar Resorts or visit Bahamar.com slash tennis cup for more information on the Bahamar Cup. Megan Fernandez edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro and you are released.